welcome to episode 4 of Lars and Prads in Liverpool. My name's Lewis Jennings and over the next half hour or so, you'll be hearing from four amazing guests. In the dialogue, we hear from Alex Steele and Carrie Jones, who talk about having three weddings and the complications of IVF. In Confessions from the Closet, we hear from singer Sammy Granger, who talks about being outed in school and how being bullied has shaped her adult life. And then finally, this week's Queero is Warren Hartley from Open Table, a brilliant organisation offering LGBTQ plus Christians a place of worship. So my next guests are Alex Steele and Carrie Jones. And I just want to start off by saying you have the most like film actress names ever. But like <laughs> you say that you've met in London, like what happened? Do you know no, what? We didn't, yeah, we didn't actually oh. meet in London. So we had quite a lot of mutual friends. It's such a mad story. We <laughs> we've like worked with the same celebrities. We had some mutual friends that really random friends that like don't even connect at all so when we did meet it was actually through a friend's birthday and we met in Manchester Um, and it was just one of those times I think it was just like it was like it was meant to be you know Carrie come up from London I come from Liverpool um, and it was just it was literally just a friend's birthday party but it was like proper love at first sight it was you know it was it was one of them it was like you know proper proper love at first sight I think like we're engaged six months later he's got married three times didn't you yeah. <laughs> well, not three times, but that three ceremonies. Three weddings, yeah. Yeah. Like we didn't no, we don't want any force. You know, yeah. we don't want any force. We just had three weddings. Three weddings. Yeah. We ended up um, and we always say this to people as well. You know, we were I was twenty-nine when we met and Carrie was thirty-one. So it was, you know, that I think a lot of people some we've got friends who are, you know, mid twenties and they're worried about never finding the one and this and that, you know, not that we were really old, but, you know, it, we we were... Well, I was in my 30s. Yeah, yeah. in your 30s, yeah. Um, and it it was just, it was so perfect. So obviously, we had relationship before and stuff like that, but it just, it all aligned at the right time. And I always want to say that to people as well. Like, you know, really holding out for the right person is so important because we literally, it was like we weren't expecting each other at all. And then we just like, smacked each other in the face like <laughs> unexpectedly but yeah so we ended up having three weddings um <laughs> we because we that sounds so ridiculous it does, doesn't it? <laughs> we're gonna explain we're gonna explain it does sound ridiculous we and we were going to Burnerman, you know the Burnerman festival in nevada it is in in america and we were already going with quite a lot of friends before we even got engaged we were already going. yeah so when carrie proposed we were like oh my god let's get married in Burnerman. it was perfect for us we both wanted that type of wedding but obviously it was in a different country so we needed to do it here legally first so our first wedding wedding was just kind of the legalities of it we just had a couple of friends and family um and it was so emotional. We we thought, oh, you know, we'll sign the papers, whatever. You know, Burnerman's going to be our proper wedding. But actually, it was born. Oh, I, I think it was me. I actually think it was me that started the crying. <laughs> um, and then obviously, when we went to Burnerman, we, we we were technically already married, but that was our you know wedding. Yeah. Yeah. And our friend that introduced us married us there as well. Yeah. Was there with us. <laughs> it was nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then when we came back to Liverpool, we thought. 
we're both our dad's only daughters, you know, and so our dads are only going to get one opportunity to walk their daughters down the aisle. So we were like, we really should honour that, I think, and, and our mums as well, you know, we really should do something for our family. I think if I took the one opportunity for my mum to be mother of the bride, she'd have just <laughs> never spoken. If I took yeah. that away, she'd have just never spoke to me ever again. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it's not, sometimes it's not just about you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's... Um, but I'm glad, I'm really, really glad we had a big wedding as well. Yeah, definitely. Even though at the time we were like, oh God, we're so not us, but actually I freaking loved it. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I, you know what, I've, ne- I've never been to like an LGBT wedding, so I'd love to go. Like just, I imagine mm. it'd be so much fun. It was very much like, well, who's going to walk down the aisle and who's going to wear a dress and who's going to do this and who's going to do that? Even for us, I was like, oh. Oh God, who who is gonna do this and who is gonna do that? Um, but we can say of, things like that to you, like who's gonna wear the dress? Both of us, yeah, <laughs> or, no, or none of <laughs> us. Both <laughs> wearing dresses, no, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was funny because we'd never, we'd also not been to an LGBT wedding before. Um, it was just, it it was perfect, wasn't it? We yeah. both decided we wanted to walk down the aisle, so we both done that. Carrie went first with her dad, and then me with my dad. And it was cool because we could just create it ourselves, you know. We didn't. Mm. It didn't have to be. Um, what's the word? Traditional. Traditional, you know. It didn't have to be yeah. traditional, and it made me realise actually, like none of us have to be traditional. No. When you're a man and a woman, that doesn't need to be traditional as well. But so many people kind of just follow I what they think, when, don't they? When you think about weddings, there's so much crap that goes with it, like the, <laughs> yeah. the ridiculous car that picks you up. What does that mean to you? Unless you're into like classic old cars. Why have you got this random car picking you up that costs a fortune? And then the flowers is all the weird thing. Again, unless you that's your thing and you love them, why do you have to spend thousands of pounds on flowers? It, it gets ridiculous, doesn't yeah. it? So we yeah. just didn't have any of that crap, <laughs> wedding yeah. cake, nothing like that. Because um, it's like, I, I just think it's all a load of crap, to be honest. But um, so we just... We didn't need it. We didn't no, really we just do. didn't, we didn't need, need any it. of that extra rubbish. So we just like made it our own, really, didn't we? I don't know whether this is like a personal question. So, so sorry, like I don't mean to to come across like that. But... Give it to us. <laughs> we can handle it. Well, I was just going to say, like, are you going to like set like I know you just settle down. You've got your own place and that. But would you just ever have kids? Yeah, we've been trying for a long time actually. And this asked? needs to be talked about more as well. So yeah, we're obviously very open to talking about it. We've been um, we've been trying for three years now, um, but you know, there's no help for the gays so you have to pay for all of your fertility treatment so you have to go private um because there's no help on the nhs at all so we've spent tens of thousands on trying to get pregnant and it's um it's just not worked just because it's like the ratios of how many times you try if we were a normal couple it's like having sex 10 times over three years, of course, that might not have happened. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) But because we have to do it that way and we're about to pay every single time, it massively slows everything down. Um, But yeah, I think people don't realise, because in some parts of the country, hetero um, couples get three goes of IVF on the NHS. Like three goes. Yeah, and for us, private, it costs £14,000 per go. No way. Honestly, yeah, I know. So it's really, it's really shocking. That it seems like a bit of a rabbit hole, loophole, not a rabbit hole, a loophole. Yeah, it does because we didn't know that at first um, until we, you know, until it was an option for us to go for IVF. I was like, oh, because how they look at it is um, IVF is for couples who have fertility problems. 
we don't have fertility problems. We just have no sperm. So it's put in a different category. We're not, there's nothing medically wrong. That's how that, that's how the NHS look at it. There's nothing medically wrong. So it's kind of put in a different category, which is, it's, it's, it's sad really, Mm. isn't it? So we've paid for all of our goes, but obviously, as you can imagine, the stress of the financial stress on top of, you know, all the rest of it, because with IVF, there's a lot of medication, there's a lot of injections and drugs, and it's already quite a, a difficult journey. It's very emotional. Put the financial stress on top of that of like, this has to work, you know, like it has to work this time. Um, so we, how many goes IUI and IVF did we have? IUI is just when they put the, literally you buy the sperm and they put it inside you. There's yeah. no like, no it's like, removing it's just much more of a simple procedure it's like the medical version of a turkey based job yeah but yes <laughs> again it's like, a shot, it's like a shot in the dark and that costs two and a half grand just to have that done honestly mm-hmm. and it's literally just like the sperm's in a test tube and they just put it it just saves you handling the sperm do you know what i mean because um and that's what we were um recommended to try that first and then after you've done it a few times and you're like this is so a shot in the dark do you know what i mean it's like it's a very low percentage. It's a very low percentage that it's going to work. Kind of like one time having sex. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. And you know, if you're trying for a baby, you have sex all day and all night on the ovulating time, but it's just one going like two and a half thousand pounds every time. And then we're like, right, let's just up the stakes and um, have IVF. It's much more of an ordeal. You, you have to have an operation to have your eggs removed and then put back in. And it's a lot of inject. Alex had to inject me in the stomach um, every morning for about a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a real ordeal and that costs £14,000 wow. um, I know and you to bring the price down you can have the option to sell your eggs basically so I the half the eggs they took out they put to one side and they literally sell them through the their clinic for people that need egg donors and that chops the price in half so that made it um, £7,000 to have the IVA but then they make you do things like write a letter to the child that might be born in 18 years' time through somebody else with, I, your eggs. with, with my eggs. And we had to write a letter. Honestly, it got so we were like, oh my God, I did not sign up for all this. And you're going through it yourself and you're writing a letter to this child that may or may not be born, that may read it in 18 years' time. We don't even know if anyone would pick my eggs or if they if someone's had a child with my eggs yet or not, but you think, Oh my God, we've gone through all this just to like save 7,000 pounds. Um, so it, it's so much extra emotion on top of it when you're pumped full of drugs and you're going through it as well. It was, um, Oh, they made it seem really simple. Like, Oh, you can just donate half your eggs, but they don't tell you you've got to go through all that as well. Mm. Um, and then we had it done again and then it didn't work. And we even thought instead of going through all the operation again, I said, do you think we could buy our eggs back? And then she was like, oh, someone else is pregnant with them. I was like, oh, why did I ask? Why did I ask? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. So it's, again, it's like, oh, but maybe you think, maybe we had to go through all that so that someone somewhere could have a life with, and because some couple is obviously, for them to have an egg donor, they've obviously been trying for years. So sometimes you just have to think, maybe that wasn't about us. Maybe that was just so someone else could, have a family and someone could be born and have a happy life 
but it was anyway there was such a freaking ordeal wasn't it yeah so we just decided to not have IVF anymore because it's too much it's too much financially and it's too much emotionally and physically as well it's it took me about a year to get back to normal didn't it yeah it was it was a lot I think you start realizing um, kind of halfway through you start realizing that it's just a business you know this is a business and every time we come here we've got to pay extra for this pay extra for that oh we need a blood test now extra for that and it just mounts up and mounts up and I was like it's this is just it's you know I'd never been private for any sort of healthcare before. So I, halfway through it, obviously we've committed this to it now, but I just realised this is just a business, like, you know, like anything else. Because yeah, um, they'd be like, pop in and have a blood test. Then they'd be like, that's 55 quid just for a blood test. You take, We take all this for granted because we have the NHS, yeah, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up um, from there on, which we just need, you needed a bit of a break, didn't you? Yeah. Needed a bit of a break from it. and Get my head together. Yeah. So now we're actually trying with a friend. Oh, um, so a sperm donor who's a friend of ours. Um, and we're much happier with that. We've gone to the old turkey baster. We've gone for the old turkey baster job because <laughs> we we know people who've done it and, you know, it, it's been successful for them. And, you know, what is much better Um much it's you know take away all the financial stress the drugs the going to the hospital it takes out all the clinicalness of it and you know we love our friend he you know we know him you know he's healthy like all the rest of it so we're kind of happy with that so that that's where we're up to now yeah so yeah it's been it's been a journey but what we've what we've come to realize is that everybody has their fertility journey the more we've spoken to people the more i'm like oh okay People don't, people, you know, not everyone just gets pregnant really easily because everyone's got their own journey. Yeah. We only see the finished product when someone's pregnant. Yeah. People don't share all of this. That's why I'm, ha- I'm so happy to talk about it because yeah. people don't share it. And you think, because even like one of our friends got, we did get pregnant as well and we lost it at seven weeks. So what our first IVF, it did work, but then we miscarried. And one of someone that we were much better friends with now, but I just knew her then. She got pregnant at exactly the same time. And... I just kind of had to watch her pregnancy journey and now she's got, she had the baby and, and I'm thinking, oh God, she's just got pregnant like that. But of course, as I've got to know her, she was trying for three years. It wasn't easy for her. She had a whole journey as well, but you don't see any of that. You just see they're pregnant now and they've had a baby and everything's perfect, but it very, very rarely is. Some people it is obviously, and that's amazing for them, but you just, you can never, you never know what's gone on with people or what they've been through. Yeah. So I'm here today with Sammy Granger, who's also a singer, and Sammy's going to share her coming out story today. So thanks for coming on, Sammy. Hi, thank you for having me. No problem. <laughs> so how are you today? I'm good. Yeah, excited to be on uh, this podcast. I think it's brilliant. I'm really happy you're doing it. That's good. Um, so you've got quite a, well, I was going to say interesting coming out story then. I was going to say very, as you called it before, intense. So what what, what happened? It was back when you was in school, were Yeah, so um, I went to a Christian all-girls high school. Um, and obviously I don't fit in with whatever their opinions are of the world. And kids are mean. <laughs> uh, and I think... I've never been a person to kind of hide who I am. I always want to try and live myself, like, 
being authentically myself. Um, but I definitely wasn't ready for the entire school to find out. And it was actually a close friend who basically outed me to the entire school. And where we used to sit in the yard was raised concrete blocks that used to everybody used to call the square. And the thing was that if you went on the square, you were going to turn gay, which is the most ridiculous thing <laughs> in the world. But we, I think it was a little bit bad before um, I was outed, but definitely after that, that kind of gave people the opportunity to be like, oh, you're the only out person in the school. And I mean, our whole friendship group uh, kind of took the brunt of it. And I'd say I'm very grateful for the fact that it was never physical bullying I never got beaten up or anything but I was definitely followed home from school I was definitely bullied by teachers um I think if we were treated uh the way that we did then now there'd be court cases against the school without a shadow of a doubt because I remember once um someone had thrown orange juice all over me called me a faggot and um I was obviously late going into form because I was cleaning myself up and my form teacher asked me why I was late so I explained the situation to him and his response to it was well maybe don't be gay wow Wow. and I was like this this is after five years in that school of stuff like that happening continuously and me getting detention for shouting at people for being a bigot I you know I remember one girl um, telling one of my friends who was from um, Iran to lose her accent and go back to where she came from. And this after weeks of, again, like being homophobic towards me, being, you know, racist to people. And I flipped out at her, you know, start having a go, being like, you can't talk to people like this. And I was the one who got in trouble. <laughs> and I basically refused to go to detention or anything for yeah, anything like that, that, because why should I? Mm-hmm. I, and I remember once... Um, one of my friend's grandparents had passed away. Um, so she was obviously very emotional and someone walked past her in the school and said, go kill yourself, you dyke. And she pushed this girl against the wall. And like, she, you know, we're never, we're not violent people um, at all. Any of my friends have never been in a fight or anything, but it gets to a certain point where you can only push people so much. And when you happen to defend yourself for, literally just being you uh how I wouldn't say it defines me but it's definitely shaped parts of my personality for the rest of my life because of how I was treated in school um I'm definitely a little bit hardened I definitely have my own prejudice against pretty popular girls and stuff and it was coming up to our 10-year um reunion and obviously with COVID we can't really do anything but people started posting stuff on Facebook and inviting us and I I was sat there and I was like oh our 10 year reunion that'll be great and then I was like actually no I don't don't want to hear your apology I don't want to hear that you're a better person I don't want to hear that you're gay now I you know I don't want to hear that you've had your lesbian experience like I'm I'm good with who I am and where I'm at in my life and I don't need to go back to that point in my life and you know be somebody's redemption I guess no definitely yeah definitely and like, so you said about the teachers um, getting involved and like what you just said about that teacher before was disgusting, by the way. But what was there any other like um, say, like situations where they bring stuff up and 
make you yeah. just basically degrade you yeah loads of times you know we when I say it was bad I would meet like I said our where we sat in the yard was right in the middle and there was many times where we pretty much had the entirety of that school you know 800 other students screaming stuff at us throwing stuff at us telling us that you know we're less than for who we are and to be honest most of our group weren't even gay and I was the only person who was out um and the teachers would just be stood there watching and doing nothing and we would go to them and they said we can't do anything until they hit you and it's like well why are you waiting for violence to happen and it's you know what's happening still has lasting effects even if it's not physical um and one of our um teachers was gay and I remember her calling me to her office and basically telling me that the school was going to do nothing about this but if I wanted support then she would be there if I didn't want to go into class I could go do it in her room and I just thought I'm not hiding away you know I'm I'm going to go to class if people feel uncomfortable by me existing they can feel uncomfortable I don't care exactly uh, you know like Dina De- uh, Davina De Campo said on yeah. Drag Race uh, your opinion is your opinion my existence is reality so suck it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that quote, you know, we use it all the time. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Me too. But so like I think that's every queer person's worst nightmare, isn't it? Is being outed in school. Like because it's that time where you're like you're only coming out to yourself really for some people, isn't it? So to then, you know, be outed in such such circumstances, like I couldn't even imagine. Like how, how did you cope with it? If you did cope, like what happens? Uh, I mean, I guess I'm I'm the type of person where if you're saying it to me, I'm going to roll my eyes. And if you, I mean, yeah, it was also confusing because um, I'm bi, I'm not gay. But at the time, everybody was like, you're gay. And I was in an all girls school. So I was like, I guess I am. <laughs> you know, I was 14, 15. You have emails being sent around to every school, like email address, including teachers about you being gay. And I'm like, well, well done for pointing out facts like you're straight like but if it's aimed towards my friends that's when I would turn a little bit mouthy and give it back to them basically uh there's definitely times where um I would stay back in school rather than leaving straight away because people would be following you home and then you leave school and you think that it stops but you'd be out in town and you'd see girls from high school and this one we're 19 20 at this point and then they immediately would be on their phone to their friends being like oh my god Sam Grange is over there she's with a girl and then immediately there's 20 people all staring at you and it's like am I that entertaining <laughs> like is there nothing going on in your life like who cares who I'm attracted to uh, yeah I think I was able to deal with it in I think I internalized a lot of it I definitely didn't tell my parents what was happening at all um and I guess because the school weren't doing anything about it, it was just, and allowing it to happen, it was just like, a, well, what else am I going to do? It was a good school. It wasn't a violent school. If I went anywhere else, it could have potentially got worse. So mm-hmm. I guess you have to just kind of look at the situation and think that even though it's not great, it's the best of what it could be. But that that's still shitty even saying that, isn't it? Because really, the best is not good enough. Like... It's still a horrible yeah. situation. Yeah, and I think that um, definitely the school has 
um, a lot of accountability in that. They have a duty of care. And even if it is a Christian school and you're going to have like how many students in a school, like 800 to 1,000 students, of course, you're going to have queer people there. And it's your duty to protect them as adults. And, you know, I always say that uh, you can't get equality without exposure and education. And the education has to come from the school and it has to come, you know, the exposure can be from people like us and doing a podcast like this, you know, going to drag shows, putting on gay pride, you know, making people feel uncomfortable. But you can't get that equality without the education and you've got to do that from when people are young. Well, that's why I think they need to bring LGBTQ plus lessons into schools. Like, I don't know. I know there was there was a lot of stuff going on about it last year um, and all them parents in Birmingham, like protesters against it. Like, I don't, so I don't know to what extent it's being brought to the pool and if anyone's, you know, being for or against it, but it definitely needs to happen if it hasn't already. Yeah, because at the end of the day, even if people don't agree with it and even if, you know, us being ourselves threatens someone's way of life or their beliefs, like, queer people aren't going anywhere. <laughs> if anything, we're getting louder and prouder and, you know, we're going to be more in your face. And if you feel uncomfortable, then now you're in the minority do you know, like, if you got the opportunity to go back to your school now and, like, you could talk about all this and, like, speak to the teachers, like, what would you be saying to the teachers? Even if you have somebody in your school that doesn't uh, fit what your beliefs are, you still have that duty of care. You don't know what's going on in that person's life. And even if they are young, you know, I've dealt with a lot of stuff in my life. Um and that on top of it just sends people to the to the brink you know I felt really really suicidal when I was in high school because it was just non-stop you go into a place where you know that you're going to be victimized and attacked every single day and if you're a teacher you need to be there to support them even if like you accept that role as a mentor and as a protector for someone when their parents are on there and you have a duty of care regardless of what your own beliefs are. So I'm here with Warren Hartley, who is the LGBTQ plus ministry facilitator for Open Table Liverpool. Yeah, Open Table, thank you. It's great to meet you, Lewis. Great to meet you, sir. Um, yeah, Open Table... It's, it's a community really by and for LGBTQIA plus people. Um, and it's, it runs out of St Bride's Church in Liverpool, just up in the Georgian Quarter. Um, I've been part of the community pretty much since it started, although I wasn't the one who made it, who's kick-started it all. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a Christian worship community that welcomes and affirms, more importantly, affirms LGBTQIA plus people as they are. Yeah. Um, what our, our motto we try to live up to, whereas we're as imperfect as any organisation, um, secular or religious, um, but our, our motto really is to try and live up to, to this um, come, come as you are. So I feel like it's quite taboo for religion and LGBT to mix, like you never hear of the two coming together. So how would you say Christians have perceived Open Table? Um, mostly positive, I think. Mm. Um, but no, you're right, there's, I think, the, the Christian churches very traditionally have been very anti-LGBT. Some of them, ver- some of them vociferously so. Mm. Um, you know, we've all seen the protesters at Pride. Yeah, you know, we know what they're like. 
Um, you know, and they do represent a particular grouping of Christianity who are loud and very anti our community. Um, but there is also quite a lot of churches that are very pro. Um, and one of the surprising things is, well, perhaps not surprising, is that religious affiliation amongst the LGBT plus people is about the same as it is amongst non-LGBT plus mm. people. So um, there is, you know, a sizable proportion of our community who've held on to their faith, whether that's Christian or other. Um, and I think finding those communities um, where we can be both LGBT authentically and authentically Christian are few and far between. Mm. And again, our hope, we're an imperfect community, our hope is that in this is a space where those two can come together absolutely authentically and completely. Exactly. I think it's important, isn't it, for the community to have somewhere where they can go because, as you said, they, like, why should someone let go of the religion just mm-hmm. because of, you know, some people, some, like, bigs of people mightn't agree with it, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, like, I think they're teaching both the same thing, like, we're about teaching love and, like, mm-hmm. that's, that's what religion's all about at the end of the day, isn't it? Absolutely. No matter what religion it is, it's teaching the same thing, it's uh, love and respect one another, so... Mm-hmm. That got that golden rule, what we call the golden rule in the West, you know, like you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, that is at the real core of um, most faith traditions, if not all. Um, and actually, that rule is often quite common amongst the teaching of, of all, um, nearly every world religion in one way or another. Um, how that's lived out is very different. Um, and it's that again. That was that thing I said before about a postcode lottery is that. I don't, I don't believe and I don't experience Christianity to be inherently anti-LGBT. Um, there are distinctly big chapters of it um, that say that it is, mm. but actually it's not my experience of my faith or my experience of my interaction with God, the divine, the other, however, whatever word you want to use to describe God. That is not my experience at all. Of, of the, I don't think God has a problem with my sexuality. Um, I think um, he created it, or she created it, you know, use whichever gender pronoun works. Um, so actually, no, I don't think there's a problem here at all. Problem is, our understand- is, is broader Christianity's understanding of sexuality and gender identity, um, and it hasn't traditionally embraced our community. Um, and I think that's the other important thing about Open Table is that we can be public, open and authentic and actually hopefully be a gift to the church, the broader church who doesn't yet understand us mm. um, and actually saying, we're here, you know, come on, yeah. there isn't a problem here. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, uh, that's a long-term project perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, like, I found with religion, I think it's brilliant and it's used by other people to in a bad way sometimes, mm-hmm. like the government or something, do you know what I mean? They use it to stir, stir the pot and like they mm-hmm. use religion as like the kind of thing, do you know what I mean? But I think it, it shouldn't be religion that gets the backlash for that. It, mm-hmm. You should be looking at the bigger picture and like what's actually going on. Religion can, yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think religion can be used as a tool to divide us. Yeah. Um, because human beings do seem to be fairly tribal in the way we react and interact, particularly when we're frightened. Mm. Um, with a lot of huge change and fear in our community because of COVID, because of Brexit, because of lots of other things. Um, 
where is and the more the more people can whip up that kind of stuff, the more they can divide us. Um, and I think we need to look past these labels into us being human beings who have lots of different flavours, mm. um, and um, and seeing that beaut- the thorough beauty and diversity of the creative world, you know, of all of us. Um, there is so much beauty and potential. Um, and I think as soon as we start to get narrowed down, that's when we start getting xenophobia and homophobia and transphobia um, because we, st- we lose sight of the individual, the person, the human being. Yep. Um, and as soon as we lose sight of that, we can other. And that's when it becomes destructive. And um, So you've run an annual Christmas service, don't you? Yeah. Uh, and that was on Sunday. What was that like? It was great. Uh, very different to previous years. Normally... Um, normally we pack the church out. It's the biggest event we do in the parish every year. Um, it started about 10 years ago and uh, our parish d- didn't have a, a carol service and Open Table meets on the third Sunday of the month for its main service. And we said, oh, we've got to do something Christmassy. And so we did something small one year. And then the next year I talked to some friends who sang in the Liverpool, what's now called the Liverpool Rainbow Chorus, and said, oh, would you fancy coming along and performing some carol? Oh, we'd love to. Oh, come along. Um, so they came one year. And it's, since then, it's just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so normally, we, you know, we have lots of, lots of great carols from the chorus. Um, and uh, one of the community members at St Brides is a former West End singer. And so she comes and does a number or two. And we do have some Bible readings telling the traditional story. And then we have poems often written by queer people, but not always. Um, and, you know, the community members deliver this carol service for the parish. Mm. That's brilliant. And we put food on and mince pies and mulled wine. And it's just a brilliant, brilliant evening. So much fun. A lot of work, but a lot of fun. So, of course, we couldn't do any of that this year. Um, so a couple of months ago, we spoke to the chorus and they said, um, I said, Would you, could you do some online videos? Oh, yeah, we'd love to. So they did some. Emma again did some songs. Um, Jen Williams, who runs the Open Table Sefton community, oh, yeah. is a beautiful singer and guitarist. So she did a song. Um, another member of Open Table Chester is a professional singer. And so he did a, a number. He's got a beautiful voice. And, you know, so we pieced that together and got different people to do readings and poems and got um, some people from Sahir House to read a poem and... Oh. Um, Somebody from Homotopia and Liverpool Queer Collective did a poem. So it was a real community yeah, yeah. feel and just a real celebration. It was just brilliant. No, that sounds loved it. it. Really good fun. Okay, I think that's why you, like, it's more important than ever for your organisation to be here because mm. people need that, do you know what I mean? Like, more than anything with like, COVID and everything that's gone on, it's been such a traumatic year mm-hmm. for everyone. Like, religion is just like, it, get, it gets you going, doesn't it? It's mm-hmm. got a lot of people got there through this year, so... Yeah. It's about lighting a light in the darkness, I think. Yeah. And um, um, yeah, because we've throughout COVID, we've been able to keep going. Obviously, not in person. Um, we could have returned to in person, doing stuff in person. Um, but when we did the logistics, because um, you had to, to create a building that was COVID safe, we could only have so many people in at a time. Oh, I see. And when we did the numbers, there wouldn't have been enough for people who normally turn up. And I thought, I am not turning people away at the door. Mm. I cannot do that. That is just the antithesis of what we are about. 
it's got to be an open door and an open table that people can come. I can't turn people away. I'm not doing it. Mm. So I thought, well, we're just going to keep going online because we can have more people than could have been in the building. Um, and online doesn't work for everybody, but it's been a lifeline for those who just who are totally isolated. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's been great to just keep that really lovely community connection going. Yeah. Um, and it's been lovely to watch community members looking after each other. So it's not the leadership looking after this little group of people. Actually, it's the community looking after each other. Yeah. And that's been beautiful to witness. Yes. Absolutely beautiful. And they do it because they care. That's all for episode four. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and also Google Podcasts. If you'd like to come on, don't forget to send an email to loudandproudin at gmail.com or contact us on social media. Now we're available on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And our username is at loudandproudin. See you next week.